doctors to dominatrixes, we delve into the many realms of mental, physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual health. I am Allison Schulte. I am a sex witch, and I am the CEO and founder of Pelvic Sanctuary. That is a nonprofit dedicated to helping LGBTQIA plus individuals in the Los Angeles area and beyond virtually through workshops, training programs, and other forms of education. And you can learn more about that and support our work at pelvicsanctuary.org. Today's guest is super special. It's Sherry Rose, who is a photographer and performance artist and my art mom and the Jewish mom I never had. She's an art mom to a lot of young feminist and performance artists. And I actually became enamored with her during my undergrad and later was able to meet her through the Tama Finland Foundation. And she's been a very dear and important friend ever since. You may know Sherry from her collaborative work with the performance artist Bob Flanagan or her photography documenting the wide range of Los Angeles subcultures, especially in relation to BDSM and body modification. She is an icon and a legend as far as I and many others are concerned. And it was such a privilege to sit down with her and hear her takes on new anti-feminist policies emerging in the government and her own liberation and deprogramming from the patriarchy and the fascinating experiences with sex and dating that followed. The conversation covers the full, beautiful arc of her life from her discovery of BDSM with a life partner of 16 years to her hopes for the next chapter. A couple notes on this episode is it was one of the first interviews I recorded and it was in, I believe, around July of 2022. So that gives you a little context of how it related to Roe versus Wade um, at that really specific time. Also, I did not have microphones yet, and we're two punk gals, so we just recorded it in her yard on my iPhone, so the quality of the recording might not be as good as the content is. But I think our angel editor, Adolfo, has saved it some, and it's kind of fitting that it's a little bit rough and DIY, if you know who we are. So, enjoy Sherry Rose. It's in our in our and they they never fund you know childcare they never they never fund anything that really is necessary if you really believe in the sanctity of life you have to give childcare you have to give paid leave where the right. husband can take I mean there's so many things that could at other as you know you very well know because you live there that other countries do without even thinking about we can't get that stuff funded so right. I, I'm. So where, yeah, where are all these babies that nobody could afford or like babies that are going to have special needs? Like Absolutely. where are they all going to go? Who's going to open gonna, their homes to no. these children? They're going to end up oh, in, in the institutions. Yeah. Oh, we're going to try and get more foster care. Yeah, foster care is a terrible system. Yeah, it's already horrible. It's horrible. And, you know, I read somewhere it said like, what if a 13-year-old a girl says something, she wants to have a baby, you say, no, you can't have a baby at 13. But yet, 
if she's raped or incested, she has to have a baby at 13. Right. I don't know the answer. I wish I did. I wish I had, oh, well, look, just, we just do this. But I think it's the culture of this country in terms of the gun culture that maybe a militia, whatever that meant in the 18th century, you know, what it meant to have a militia, it certainly didn't mean having an assault rifle, that's for sure. And I think a militia sort of sounds like maybe an army or something. It doesn't sound to me like it's people just having guns. And New York's doing the same thing. Now you can just carry, and you don't have to have a permit to carry. And it's already horrible what's happening with this country in terms of, of the gun culture. And it's really, I think the problem is the the Catholic and evangelical Christianity, they've had this agenda for maybe 100 years. I don't know how long they've had it, where life begins at inception. Whereas Jews and, and um, Muslims don't believe that. They don't. So we're, we are getting their ideas hoisted on us. And not just the Supreme Court, but there's like about 20 or 30 states that are doing the same thing. I think it's really, a, 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 they don't call it that, but it is a war against women. It is the Handmaid's Tale, which I read, what, 50 years ago, whenever right. it came out, and was horrified. And they made a big hit TV show about it. That's what we're, we're in now. We are in the Handmaid's Tale. And as a woman, I mean, I'm old, I'm too tired to protest. I mean, everybody is protesting. I was protesting to get Roe versus Wade passed. That's how long ago I was doing it. Right. That's why I wanted to talk to you. It's yeah. It's just like, you, you already did this. <laughs> and now it's like undone. And I can't imagine yeah, what I, that I, feels I can't. like. And I have two what? granddaughters. I have one, one who's 17 and one who's 7. What kind of a world are we, you know... The only good thing I can do is maybe it'll turn more women into lesbians. Of course, the problem <laughs> is you don't turn into a lesbian. Either, I mean, either you, you are, you're attracted to women, or, or you're not. But a lot of women, you know, I don't even know if, if maybe I think, I think because I was never brought up to be a lesbian or be bisexual. I was told, get married when you're 20, have children, and that's it. You know, I mean, heterosexuality was pounded into me. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted sex... I better be married to have sex or else. And it was. I do remember one story. wasn't a story. I was in high school and I was out shopping somewhere, a department store probably, and there was a girl from my school with her mother, and this girl was, was obviously pregnant, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being shocked to see her, a young girl with a big stomach. And I didn't go over and talk to her. And I feel, to this day, I feel embarrassed that I didn't. I didn't particularly shun her like, oh, I'm a mission. What she did was a sin. But it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. This was back in, the, back in the 50s, probably 58, maybe something like that. And I never forgot it. I never forgot my own reaction to, to seeing her with her mother. And, and I think that in, in a Jewish middle-class neighborhood, that was the norm. You just didn't get pregnant. You didn't. Mm -hmm. And if you did, that's your your march for life. So I, I'm I'm feeling very discouraged, you know, and it seems that the bad guys are winning, you know, and I don't know. You know, I, I wanted things to be better. I I thought I was doing things to make them better. I very early on once I once I left my marriage and the safety of that, I wanted to see what else was out there in the world that I really didn't know anything about. I really didn't. It's hard for, to imagine, like, now I'm like this big icon of, you know, liberation and stuff. That wasn't me until I was, like, 
38 years old. I, right. I, I was totally repressed. But for some reason, there was, and I think that is the only hope. There are women who I think, but it takes a lot of courage to break out from something that's familiar and safe. And I don't know anymore. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very discouraged. Personally, I don't know what I can do. I'm not going to march anymore. I'm not going to write any letters. I'm not going to give, and that's the other thing. I get like 10 things a day. Oh, give $5 to this. Give $6 to this. Give 50. I mean, it's not that I don't want to give, but it's constant. Right. Constant. Are you a Democrat? Fill out this form and then give us money. And I think that's not up to me to give them money or, or any other just, I mean, it has to be some kind of institution. It has to be on a much higher level. Yeah. But and I feel like you've already done your part. So I just wanted you to like get a chance to share your story and what you've done and how you came there. You know, yeah, well, really important. Well, to... I was, I was, I was um, a virgin uh, because in those days there there was no birth control that I knew about. And like I say, seeing that woman, my, my that girl, my peer, with with her mother shopping, and I couldn't even go over and say hi to her mm-hmm. to my forever chagrin that I couldn't. And then again, thinking that thinking when I was with my husband, the first man I ever slept with, that I was pregnant like a few months before our wedding, and and we were ready to go and buy a ticket to Sweden. At the time, it was the only place that we knew of that we could get a, a legal abortion. Really, this was again '62, I think it was, and and the fear that and it was not too much. I want a baby. It wasn't even about that. It was the the shame. I was feeling such shame. And also, I didn't want a baby. I was just 20 years old. You know, even though my mother said you have to have a boy and a girl, which I dutifully did. But but that fear that was in me, and I was a you know an educated, and I had money to do that, which mm-hmm. scares me. Is all these women who are poor and uneducated and don't they can't even cross state lines now? Right. That there's all these restrictions on them. And to be made to feel like there's like you're like you're a criminal for some stupid guy knocking you up, and it's like whatever that is when the sperm hits the egg, whatever that moment is, <laughs> that becomes more important than your life and your destiny. I don't I don't get the logic of that. It doesn't doesn't make sense at all. You know? so, so did you go to Sweden? No, as it turned out, I wasn't pregnant. I was late. Remember, I I was very innocent about sex. You know, he was the only first man, only man for years that I slept with, and I didn't know much about birth control back then. I don't think I don't think we used condom. I don't remember. Pop obviously didn't, I guess. But you know, it was that sense of of, of doom. And I'm yeah. sure I'm sure other women, young women who are maybe they're they have an abusive boyfriend, stepfather, priest. I don't know what happens. Why? young girls get pregnant there's many reasons or just being stupid you know or being overwhelmed if you're making out with them now i had a boyfriend back then before i got married when i was 15 and i didn't even realize it then but we had a lot of sex that was him fingering there was no oral sex and there was no intercourse it was a lot of fingering (laughs) and maybe even fisting a little bit i don't know but that would go on for hours, and that was really, really fun. But I had never even experienced a penis, and I think I think at the very end of our lovemaking, I think I I did touch his penis. I don't know if I I don't know if I jerked him off. I don't I don't remember sperm ever, so I don't know. But that was very unusual. 
But I'm realizing now that's really, you know, how how women make love to each other. Okay. You know, they, they they get off on on fists or hands or dildos or whatever. I was didn't know about dildos. But his his hands and his thumb and his were enough to get me off. So I never, you know, I never really worried about getting pregnant because he never even. But I think he was very rare. He was, he was, he was unusual. But once I got married, I, I, I once I, I, I stopped seeing him when I was like sixteen because he wanted to get married, and I said no, I don't want to get married. I want to go to college, and we broke up. Um, that's my Jewish part. I have to get an education. And I love that, that getting married meant not going to college because it meant you were supposed to start having babies and, and you couldn't do both. And many of the girls, the smartest girls, the most beautiful girls in my class did get married right out of high school. They did. My cousin and my best friend got married uh, a couple years later. And I felt so... And I wasn't dating then. I mean, after, the thing that happened after the... the boyfriend when I was 15. I wasn't interested in any other boys after that because he was like special and I had a special thing with him and the other boys that I knew in high school and college were sort of creepy. You know, they sort of like grabbed you and without your asking if they you wanted to or not. I just, so I didn't really date very much in, in college but my best friend and my cousin got married and I was feeling I'm going to be an old maid at 20. <laughs> I really thought, if I don't get married, I'm never going to get And the thing is, Allison, I think that's true. I think if I hadn't married my husband, who was 11 years older than me, very nice man, very, very submissive to me, which I didn't know at the time, that's what I wanted, but it was, I probably would not have gotten married, which would probably have been a wonderful thing for me. Because mm -hmm. I, I never had this great feeling, oh, I have to have children. My mother drummed it into me, you have to have a boy and a girl, because you're Jewish. In the Holocaust, you have to have a boy and a girl. And, of course, my best friend and my cousin, that's what they did. You know, they were married a year before me, and they started having children a year before me. So I was programmed, brainwashed. Definitely, I think I was brainwashed. But there was that spark of me that remembers having orgasms. <laughs> Not through intercourse, but having orgasms. And I, I don't think I ever had an orgasm with my husband. I love making, and I, the other thing, I was such a dom even then. I never let him come inside. 14 years, never. I didn't want to get pregnant. And that was the only thing I thought of, that, you know, if he doesn't come inside me. And um, and he didn't mind. I mean, he was fine. After we made love and he would come outside me, he'd go into the bathroom. Every time he would go into the bathroom, clean up, while I masturbated to an orgasm. Wow. <laughs> I love it. And this went on. He never asked me, do you ever orgasm? He never, I mean... We didn't even talk about sex. I mean, sex was something that we had to do like once a week or something. Until after four years, and because my friends were, were getting having babies, I thought, well, it's time. I better have a baby or two. And I had two babies right away, which I think now, because my relationship with my daughter isn't that great, I think I rushed it too much. I should have waited before I had the second child, if at all. But I felt... I don't want to have to wait five or six years and then have another child and then go through yeah. the whole thing of raising that kid again. No, I thought, I'll do it together and I'll raise them like twins. Mm -hmm. That was my reasoning. Difficult. Because <laughs> my son and I have always been close. My daughter and I have really never been close. And I think it's because I didn't give her the undivided attention that she needed, you know, because I felt guilty about my son. And, and he was much more easygoing. She was more much more problematic. So... 
you know, you make decisions and you don't have all the facts, or you 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 have things that are old wives' tales, or you have things that are just traditions, or or your parents say this is what you should do, you know. So so our marriage was really good, actually. I think it was a good marriage. We traveled to Europe for a year. We were both teachers, and we went all over. We went we went to we just traveled, and we had a lot of friends. We bought houses. It was very, very comfortable, nice life for many years, and I and I never thought about having affairs. I didn't, and um, I really didn't think about sex very much during all those years. But we went to Europe for a year, and that sort of opened my eyes to possibilities of many things. And when I got back from Europe, I went to UCLA to go to the archaeology department, and I studied archaeology. There was a special program there, and I loved archaeology. So I loved it going to Europe and going to all these ancient places, and, and I thought, this is wonderful. There's an ancient world out there. Life doesn't start and stop in just Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had known that because I really didn't travel that much. And there, while I was while I was in class, I met somebody, and uh, he was actually from from Colombia. His name was Manuel Manuel Uribe. He's probably I don't know where what happened to him, but he and I, because we had a shared love of archaeology, and because he was a very sexy Latino, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was. And uh, so we we started sort of an affair, but at that point I was already um, separating from my husband. It was already the things were in there already, and that I wasn't satisfied. And all my friends said, "Well, just keep on having affairs, just don't tell him." And I thought, "No, that's not fair to him. I don't want that. It's not. It's not about sex. It's much more about freedom. For me, it was like having my own destiny and doing what I wanted to do and not having to. And the reason that happened was because one night. This is before I even had the affair with Manuel. After class, which was night, we would go out to bar, a bar or two and have a couple of drinks. Not drunk, not anything horrible, but just what you do if you're an adult after going to night school. You just go to the bar and have a drink yeah. and talk about stuff. Very normal thing. And my husband screamed at me. He says, no wife of mine is going to go out into a bar by herself. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? No wife of mine. I'm not yours. You can't tell and that was the first inclination I had, the real, the real inclination that I could not stay married anymore because that was, and he was a good guy. He wasn't a bad guy. Right. But, but he was, again, he was about 10 years, 11 years older than me, so he was even more entrenched system. Right. But that, that got me out of the marriage finally after 11 years and a lot of angst and all that. But, um, so you know, I I did start on a path of being on my, being my own person, but it took me till I was like what thirty seven years old. I didn't meet Bob till I was thirty nine, which is unbelievably crazy. So, and I had two years of being promiscuous, of trying out many many different things, many different kinds of sexuality, and just experimenting because I I hadn't. You know, I didn't I didn't know. What I learned from that was most men are jerks, and <laughs> I, 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 I practically didn't have any orgasms with all the guys that I was, because remember, these are the days before AIDS, mm-hmm. so you could, and I was only doing heterosexual sex, but being promiscuous, going to bars, in those days before the internet, I would go to a bar at night and find a guy that I thought was cute, and I would take him home with me. Again, that was unusual for someone my age to do that, you know, but, but I did, you know, but I was very unsatisfied. I, I, most of the time, I never had orgasms, and it was exciting to be with strange men. I found that very exciting, but basically unsatisfying. So, 
comes around to Halloween uh, 1980, and um, I was dating this guy who was a poet. Didn't work out, but he invited me to a Halloween party at a this lady's house that was a part of the poetry scene beyond Baroque, which was, that really was, you know, that was another turning point, getting involved with the artists and the poets at Beyond Baroque, because my life is not really very involved with the arts at all. You know, I mean, I like going to museums, of course, but I had, I was not, didn't identify as an artist or anything, nor did I have any artist friends. And um, all of a sudden, I'm in all these younger people, they were all a lot younger than me, but in those days, I think, I don't think I looked that much older. I think I looked, I passed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I passed. And at uh, that party, I met Bob Flanagan, and um, that really changed my life. But there's a lot of things to remember about that, too, was that um, he told me he had cystic fibrosis, and he was looking for a good two-year relationship. So after having been single for two years and going with maybe 100 or more hundred or more guys and being very unsatisfied with that whole thing, I said, a submissive man is going to wash my windows and take care of my children and do this and cook for me and fuck me whenever I wanted to. And he was cute. I mean, he was adorable. He was very cute. <laughs> Especially 27. Yeah. You know, remember, because my husband was always older than me. I had never been with anybody my own age, really, or younger. So, and, 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 and uh, uh, but I, that was a leap of faith, again, to do that. But I did it on the understanding that however weird it is, I can do this for two years. That's nothing. It's a piece of cake, two years. But he lasted for, um, till he was 43. So I was with him from 27 to 43. And in that time, we had a lifetime together. And I learned about myself, about that it wasn't a bad thing to be bossy. You know, I always felt ashamed of myself because I was this bossy woman, which I thought, oh my God, that's terrible, you know. So it's a a word they only use for women, bossy. Mm -hmm. And it's such a derogatory term. Mm -hmm. What, a woman should be bossy? No, only a man can be the boss. Yeah, a man is just a boss. And a woman is being, pretending to be a boss. (laughs) Or being a boss. So, um, and believe me, when we started out, I had never gone to art school. I didn't know much about art or performance art. I didn't know anything about that stuff. And, and Bob was an artist. He was a, a painter and a poet. And, um, and we just sort of, because of the things that we did privately, which were fun, and, and I liked the S&M scene. As far, it wasn't a scene then, but I liked what we did. I thought it was interesting because it wasn't just intercourse, fuck you, and then it's over. It's much more involved than that. We started a club. We were part of a club, Society of Janus. This started in 1981, year after we were together. And... It was um, an S&M club for anybody. We were so inclusive back then, realizing this was not just for men only, for women only, for straight people only. No. The only criteria we had for membership was a sincere interest in SMB, B&D. That was it. So we had every, every race, every nationality. We had tops, we had bottoms, we had switches, we had gays, we had trans. I mean, we had everything in that. And I think that also was so ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, maybe some of those clubs still exist, but not the way it did then. And what Bob and I started doing, we would do the things that we did privately. We would teach them. We would do demonstrations for the club. Because Bob was Bob and so funny and clever, and I was I was pretty good as a top. We became, you know, sort of like well-known in that community. But it was still just that community. But... We, we met a lot of friends, and some people we met were from a muck bookstore, 
Stuart Sweezy and Brian, I think it was Brian King, and and they put a, a book out. Uh, they were not, they didn't put it out, but they were involved with modern primitives, and they knew Andrea Juno and B and B Vale. They were their friends, and they said, "Who do you know in, in Los Angeles that does all this stuff or takes photographs?" And they knew that I did, so that's how that came about, and that's another huge step in bringing this out from the underground, and we were very instrumental in that. Bob did this performance at OEO that was blew everybody away. It was it was with music and it was with my doing S and M and Bob nailing his penis to a board. I mean, there was everything there, and uh, people were fainting. These big guys were fainting, <laughs> and in that audience was Ron Athey and the guys from Club Fuck, who unfortunately now all all gone except for Ron is the only one left. And they started Club Fuck right. because they saw the juxtaposition of S&M and art and music and craziness and performance. And so, can you explain, I know what Club Fuck was, but can you explain? Club, Club Fuck was this, it was in the back of a laundromat. Was, you had to go back to the, you couldn't, there was no sign for it, didn't say Club Fuck, nothing like that. You had to know about it. And it was in the back of this laundry on Sunset Boulevard. And, and uh, I don't remember if you had to be a member. I don't remember that. But it was music. A lot of it was music. Um, and they had a lot of SM activities. They had the equipment there. A lot of my slides were shown there for the first time publicly. And people started doing performances like we were doing in our private club. But they were done to a general audience. I mean, you had to know about Club Fuck, but almost everybody did who was cool in those days. Right. <laughs> it wasn't that large of an audience, I don't think, you know. But that was the start of a lot. I think it started Ron Athey's career and a lot of other people. Because it wasn't just doing it to have an orgasm. In fact, having an orgasm really had very little to do with whatever went on at Club Fuck or even at our parties. They were about SM activities, the fun you can have with your body and how, you know, just expanding your, your the limits of what's possible. But uh, there was never, there were never orgies. Some people had orgies, but not at our parties. Sex was not something we did, I mean, intercourse, um, or sucking people off. It, was, it wasn't like that at all. And, and they were and they were amazing because we had such a variety of people there. And um, those parties, and they were held at some of these big clubs that were on La, La Brea Avenue, some big clubs that were, that were gay dance places during the week or during the weekends. We had our parties during the week. And there were like hundreds of people who came to them. And they were, thinking back now, I think, how lucky we were to have this opportunity to be free and, and not in an oppressive way and not to say only we can do it and you can't. It was it was so equalitarian and just sort of blows my mind now how it was. But, you know, it was you know, it was it was a it was a great a great life and um and Bob and I just I, we neither one of us had gone went to art school. After when Bob was dying I did go back to art school and I got an M MFA from Irvine um, in, in performance art, so I did. And but Bob died very soon after that. Really, very. I mean, I knew he was going to die. We, we were preparing for his death the whole way. But when it was actually, we were supposed to go. It was right around his birthday. We were supposed to go to Las Vegas. Parents had come into town, and we were all ready to go. And he just starts getting sicker and sicker. And he had to go into the hospital. Went to the hospital like the couple days before his birthday, and he died January fourth. And that was really a blow to me because I, 
I mean, we made jokes about his dying. We prepared for it. We, we were very macabre in many ways. But when the actual, when it was actually there in front of me, it was very painful. Because I, 16 years, you know. Right. And it was supposed to be two. So What? <laughs> two years. But when you started out, That's you right. had an extra 14. So by the time it actually happened, it must have been a bit of a shock. Like, I wouldn't say it was a shock. It was it was more like, oh, it's real. Yeah, yeah. This is real. Because he had been sick before. He'd been in the hospital before. I used to tease him about that, you know. Oh, God, you're in the hospital again. But then as, as the years went on, the, the, the kind of medication, he was able to have things um, that were small. We didn't have to go in the hospital as much. So we had a lot more. We went to Europe twice, you know, which would be unheard of, but we did. So it was it was an amazing, wonderful time. And I think after Bob died, he died in 96, there were like, I think, 10 years or so where I didn't really do much of anything. I was being a good grandma to my granddaughter here. I, I sort of, you know, a lot of my friends started dying, suicide, most of them, which was horrifying. And I think I was pretty depressed for, for a lot of that time. And then I was invited to go to England to meet this young performance artist who um, who had read about Bob Flanagan through Ron Athey. He was doing this, I'll never forget this, he says, yeah, I'm doing this, um, it was an 11-hour performance. And I said, what? 11-hour performance? Bob and I never did an 11-hour performance. <laughs> I, I was, he says, yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. That's what I do. I said, oh, my God. So he invited me to come there to be part of this this. Um, festival, and I gave him uh, the spanking that I used to give to Bob, the hundred reasons. And we had an audience there, and, and, and I had him over my knee, naked over my knee, and I gave him the hundred spanks, and somebody read the, the names of the spankings. That started our career. And that was Martin. That was Cobra. Martin, of course. And ever since then, twice a year, I would go once to England, he would come here once, and we would do these amazing, some of them were 12-hour performances. Many of them were 24-hour performances. And the funny thing is, I did some of the same things with Martin that I did with Bob, except with Bob, after everything was over, we would fuck. <laughs> that, didn't, that wasn't on the agenda with me and Martin, <laughs> which is fine with me, because I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that. But we just had a wonderful... Uh, and it, Martin has written about me, and, and, um, and he's become sort of internationally really pretty famous now. I don't know what else has been since the pandemic. I don't know what I want to do. Do we need to do these long performances again? What I'm, I have to question what I really want out of it. But definitely hooking up with, with not not in the carnal sense, but all carnal because I do all kinds of things to his body. Mm -hmm. um, but we just had a great, you know, uh, about 10 years we performed at least 20 times. I would say. And, you know, so that was just something that, and then of course I had my heart attack three years ago, so I, and I still have people who want me to be their mistress, still. Mm -hmm. But How does that feel? Oh God, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, and and here's a funny thing, not funny, I have a lot of problem with my right arm. I have like a, a torn rotator cuff. I can't <laughs> raise my hand. So even if I wanted to whip somebody and tie them up and do all that stuff. I, I, I know from physical therapy and rehabbing rotator cuffs that they're very complicated. Very complicated. Very so painful. It's, it's a, I would, if you were my patient, I would tell you no flogging. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm going to probably have to go to some kind of physical therapy, I guess. I, I guess yeah. I will. Most of the time, through all, all these years, my son has been my, my booster. 
a booster shot, a booster in what my lifestyle choices were. He yeah. he went along with everything, and he adored Bob. Bob was a great stepfather to him. He really was. And my, Matthew grew up. I mean, he was like tw- 10 or 12, 12 years old. And another funny story, we had this big house in Westwood, and of course a lot of my friends were cross-dressers, and I was having a party, an SM party at my house, and Matthew opens the door, and there's my friend Phil wearing a dress. Matthew was a 12-year-old kid, had never seen anything like that, and he runs into the kitchen where I was, and says, Mom, Mom, Phil's here, and he's wearing a dress. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I said, sometimes Phil just likes to wear dresses. And I was very matter-of-fact. And Matthew said, oh, okay. So that was his, um, you know, he became uh, a, a really a strong ally for me with Bob. And, I mean, who wouldn't want Bob Flanagan for a stepfather? Come on. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? My daughter hated Bob because she wanted me. It wasn't the divorce that she was so upset about. She wanted me to marry a rich lawyer, a step up, you know. I got rid of Dan because he was nice, but he was a teacher. So, you know. But I wasn't interested in that. And, and she and Bob just did not get along. And it was difficult. It was difficult. So she's sort of mellowing a little bit. But I think her big thing with me is not that I'm an S&M icon. I don't think she cares about that. She cares that I don't have any money. And she said that to me several times. Mom, do stuff that makes money. Make things that sell. And I never did. I didn't. I didn't that was never my... My focus on it, and it certainly wasn't Bob's focus on it. We didn't care. So I think that's the thing. And I used to live in very big houses, and I had a lot a lot of real estate investments and stuff. But whatever the reason, my nervous breakdown or whatever, after Bob died and after my mother, my father, Bob, and even my first husband died within two years. So I was pretty devastated, and I couldn't do anything. I had to quit my job. And I sell all my properties. And I think about that sometimes. I think, what would have happened if I would have been stronger? You know, if I could have come out of all that and just handled all the real estate and handle it. But I didn't, you know. I mean, I'm strong, but I'm not that strong. You know, and, and making money, I regret, believe me, I regret. Because I regret living in, in Silver Lake and Echo Park, which were lovely places. Mm-hmm. I regret that. I do. But, you know, you get to be 80 years old and I survived a heart attack. I'm I'm still alive, and like today, this young woman who's a, a performance artist invited me, so I did a video with her. Where I I play herself as an old woman, and we dress the same. We had these outfits on, and I'm in a bathtub, and we it was it wasn't S and M, it wasn't, uh-huh. but it was just her take on me and herself being old, and it was really uh-huh. lovely. It was really fun, and of course, I've been in lots of music videos and other things. You know, so it's not as if I'm, yeah. I feel like you're still doing stuff all the time, including this interview. Well, like, I love, <laughs> honey. I love to talk. I, I'm, oh I'm, my god! I'm a, and you're like a mother. You're like a mother to so many I, young artists. Well, that's like you just that's the other thing. I regret thinking I wasn't really that good of a mother, but the, the truth is, I was not a bad mother. And I love younger my younger friends who are artists, even if they're not artists, whatever. I feel very like I want to take care of them. If I can, whatever I can do, just be positive and encourage them. Because, you know, I didn't get that from my mother at all. Yeah, you're always like complimenting me and so well, many of not, my friends. I'm not trying, I'm not trying like to make people time. feel good. I'm just, no, I, like, I, I think I have the most talented, beautiful, fun friends that any 80 year old woman can have. Yeah, that, but that says so much about you, right? That we're all like flocking to you and loving yeah, your and I, and I, and I, and I love that. I love that. And I think part of it is just, 
I've lived through so much, and I've been, and so many of my, I mean, my, I'm telling you about my good friends, lovers, either died by accident, by suicide, probably 20 of them. I mean, more than I think most people, because my friends were more volatile. They didn't have such great lives all the time, or yeah. their relationships weren't always so good, or they had other problems. So I, I think about that a lot, all my, all my dead friends. So the ones, I treasure everybody who's still alive, I'll tell you that. I'm happy about that. And I get depressed. You know, it's not as if, oh, my life is so wonderful, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. A lot of times, I don't even mind if I just stay home. I mean, it's okay. It used to be I just needed to be out all the time or go to parties all the time or go to every art event that ever happened, you know. But I remember that Bob, toward the end, he, he just said, I'm tired. I, I don't need to go to this. And I would say, come on, Bob, we have to go. We have to do this. Pushing him, you know. Pushed him as far as I could, you know. But then his body body just gave out. And I'm sort of, that's the phase I'm in now. I don't, I don't, I went to my heart doctor this week. I have a very good internist. They think everything's okay, but I know that I'm not feeling the same. I mean, all know how I feel. I'm really aware of my body, very, very much so. And I know that I'm, I'm wearing. I feel that. I feel that if I don't go out, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I hate missing things, but I don't drive. My car is really a piece of junk. I, I, I think they talk about that in L.A. Your car is a metaphor for who you are. Mm -hmm. my, my car is held together with, with duct tape. <laughs> And it and it <laughs> it runs. I don't go very far. I don't drive freeways. But that's me. You know, I don't need right. to have a new shiny, gorgeous car. And I used to have nice cars. I mean, it's not as if I always had a junky car. No. But you know, all those things. You know, don't really matter to me so much. And I'm trying. I'm really very bad at this. I'm trying to write my memoir only because I think it's a good tale. Because I'm someone who started out conventional, was great raised conventionally, and yet I was able to do sheer, maybe curiosity. I think I was curious. I mean, more than bossy, I think I was curious. If something came up and they said, how about trying this? For example, my experience with yoga. In, in, in 2000, I started going to living in ashrams. Who does that, you know, when, when they're that age? But I did. I did. And I loved it. I love my, all my time that I spend at the ashram, you know. So I, I am, something intrigues me, I want to see what it is. I don't want to say, oh, no, I could never do that, you know. Now, maybe not quite as much. <laughs> but in another sense, it's like a jack of all trades, a master of none. I've tried out so many different yeah. lifestyles. But I don't think many women my generation have done that. Maybe some have. But most get into a routine, and they, that's what they do, and they're happy with that. Good. I'm happy for them. But I've always been sort of curious and rather, and I figured myself, because Bob, I thought, listen, two years, if I don't like it, he's going to be dead or gone, and that's the end of it. Mm. And that was my attitude. I think, oh my God, he's the love of my life. I'm going to spend the next 16 years with him. That was never, I never thought that. You know, I, I believed him when he said he was going to die in two years. So I think being open is a big, it's a good quality. I think I have that. And also not being judgmental. I think people make judgments about things they don't understand or things they, they think they don't like. And I never was that way. I thought, I'll try this. And if I don't like it, I don't have to do it again. But right. I'll try it. I'll try it. You know, I'm not making a life... Well, I mean, that's because I made a lifetime commitment to my first husband mm -hmm. under the chuppah and the whole thing. <laughs> and nobody in my family had ever gotten divorced. Ever. Nobody. And, and everybody was shocked. 
and horrified. And uh, like I say, if I had taken up with a rich lawyer, they wouldn't have been so upset. But instead, I, I take up with a poor, penniless Catholic poet. <laughs> you know, not a good career choice. Yeah. <laughs> and then when did you get into like socialist feminism? Well, that was when I was in. That was when I was in um, and at um, Northridge. My assignment, everybody had an assignment. Your second year, the first year you do class, the second year you get an assignment. And my assignment was working at the women's building on the, on the campus of Northridge. And I was so scared. You were a psychology student? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting my master's in psychology. So other people had things that different outside of campus. But my assignment, and I don't think I had a choice to just give you the assignment, was the women's building there. And I was scared to walk in there. I had never been around lesbians. I just hadn't. But they were so wonderful. They so were, it was mostly run by lesbians? It was called the Socialist Feminist Network. Okay. They were all, most, most of them were philosophy professors. Okay. Smart women. And they, I was, I wouldn't say brainwashed, but I was educated to, to ancient societies, the whole thing about women, women, religion. And, and one of them said to me, you know, this is Miriam, this is before I met Bob. Don't you realize that you're sleeping with the enemy? <laughs> and I under, now I understand what she meant about that because I was because I mean it was I was just fucking these random guys, you know. So that got me thinking. That got me thinking, and I realized that that the things that that I was good at, the things that I enjoyed, being bossy, mm-hmm. and like and all the all the men that I slept with, I don't think there was one of them that came over to me. I think I went over to every, almost every one of them. And I would do weird things. I would be in the store trying out a mattress, and the guy was a salesman. I would pick him up, take him home. Once I was in mm-hmm. an airplane coming back from somewhere, and there was a cute guy in the airplane, I picked him up and took him home. I mean, I would do some things that I wouldn't do now, that's for sure. <laughs> but I, I wasn't really, you know. But I also, I had got my tubes tied uh, while I was still married. I didn't. I knew I didn't. I knew I didn't want any more children. Two was plenty. So that gave me a bit of freedom, and I was only seeing heterosexual guys, and um, I wasn't worried about AIDS. That came later because we got very, very involved with a lot of gay men at the Gauntlet. Because Bob worked at the Gauntlet, you know. The, yeah. The was, at the time, was the only place you could get pierced. Yeah. Besides getting your nipple, besides getting your ears pierced. Right. So we met a lot of really cool gay men. And, and, and we were, I was one of the only women ever involved that ever could go to the, the gay men's piercing club. I was, in, I was allowed in. So, I mean, there was a lot of things I got to do because who I was and because who Bob was. And, but we stopped short of, of really having sex with any of those guys or even doing piercing stuff because of AIDS then. People got really worried about AIDS. So we were very careful and we never slept with anybody else but each other. You know, I mean, I, I, I dominated many people. But intercourse was something that was just for me and Bob. That's my Jewish roots. You just fuck your husband. Yeah. <laughs> you can do other things, but you just fuck your husband. You know. But um, so I, I think looking back, I think I had a pretty interesting life. I think I tried to, but I, but the thing about that is, I mean, certain people, let's say someone like say Kathy Opie, who was a lover of mine back in the day, she was very enamored with Bob, and the only way that she could get close to Bob was through me. So she seduced me. She never talks about it, and she's really sort of mean to me. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, she wasn't, and so she got very close with Bob because of me, you know, kind of thing. Now, why did I bring up Kathy Opie? There must have been a reason. I don't remember why I brought her up. I think she was, I think some of the people who 
I was friends with just really wanted to be friends with Bob. Mm-hmm. And I, and they had to be friends with me because I was the gatekeeper of Bob. Mm-hmm. You know, similar maybe to Cleo and Fakir. That if you yeah. wanted to get close to Fakir, you had to get close to Cleo. You know, and there's some parallels there. You know, but of course Bob and I knew Fakir through Jim Ward way before he met Cleo, and we had some fun times with, with Fakir. A lot of fun with him. He was great. I don't, I know, I know he loved her and she loved him, all that, but. But she she came from a, a place of making money that was very important to her. She was a pro dom, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. I'm trying to write my memoir, but I'm not. I'm not. A, unlike Bob, I'm I'm not a writer, and I, I don't feel motivated to to write. I, I would like to maybe go to a some kind of a, a retreat. Retreat. I think. But it's very hard to get into them. I tried one. I didn't make it. It gets I'm, discouraging applying for things. Yeah, I, I don't it's like. Exhausting. See, that's the other thing. Bob and I almost never applied for anything. It just happened organically. People just kept asking us to do things yeah. more and more and more, including big museum shows and and doing work in 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 Germany. You know, so I think that's sort of my philosophy: is that I like to say yes if somebody asked me to. Like today, she didn't pay me any money. I, I don't know how much money she had. But she's an adorable young woman, and it was really fun. It was a couple of hours, and it was fun being with her. It wasn't sexual. It was nothing like that. Um, we weren't naked, but it was it was like her being young and me being old, and I'm her, you know, so we sort of have the same outfits on. and It was really fun. I don't know what, what's going to happen to it, but it was really it was really fun, you know. And I didn't say, oh, well, how much are you going to pay me? I didn't care. It was fun to get out of the house and be down there and be with young people doing creative stuff. I don't think I've changed my attitude much. I, my ability has certainly diminished. <laughs> I think I relate to you in that way, that, like, just saying yes to things. Like, and well, then you, I've you, done so many things that I'm not a master of anything. Like, I've been a pro-dom a little bit, and I've been I think a you're, I think you're a pretty. Bit. I think you're pretty good at a lot of things. But, you, yes, definitely you have that attitude. No, yeah. no question about it. I was married to somebody with multiple sclerosis, and I really I identified with you and Bob. Absolutely. And then I, part of my draw to Vicky was, you know, he was he modeled for Fakir. He hung out with Ron Apey when he was in L.A. He went to Club Club he did. in the 90s. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. So, anybody who went, like, that's like magic. Anybody yeah, who was, I was so jealous. Anyone who was yeah. hip enough to know about it. Well, Dirk brought him there. So oh. he would come visit Dirk, and then Dirk, Dirk would Dirk. took him to Club Fuck. So he he would, I, you know, he just had all these stories I couldn't resist. Well, like, absolutely. I was like, Dirk. I guess I'll move to Finland and marry you and just see what happens. And I got to have an adventure there for you did. five years. I know and, you did. Well, yes, I, that's what, I think so that's what I, life yeah. is about, is having adventures. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. That's how I first met Dirk, by the way. It was Club Fuck. Was Club Fuck. Yeah, and I, I don't remember if Dirk came to that performance at Olio or not. He might or might not have. I don't remember. But he was very important to Club Fuck. And he would do amazing performances there. Mostly with this woman who was a submissive. Crazy Sharon was her name. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I... I fell in love with Dirk. He was so handsome and uh, so open and so much fun, you know. I mean, I think the gay men that I was friends with then, and including Jim Ward, I mean, we had so much fun. Those guys had more fun than... And that's what that's what attracted... My brother was gay, and, and I think when I first separated from my husband, I would go with my brother 
to the gay temple. Now we're talking about 19, maybe 1980. And all these young Jewish gay men were funny, mm -hmm. gorgeous, sexy, and they would tell me the stories of all their sexual... Oh, I love it. And I was like... And, I, and they were my role model. Yeah. That's what gave me the courage to start going to bars and picking up people, you know. And, um, you know, and I feel sad because they're all dead. All, all of those guys are dead. And they were the best. They were the best. Funny and sexy and open and accepting. Just everything you would want in somebody, you know. So, yeah, I think, I think I've had a lot of death in my life. I think, a lot. yeah, when you're involved in arts and punk rock and, like, alternative it just draws people like like take more risks and also yes. are more in tune with their emotions which can make life more challenging yes so yes it goes with the territory a little bit of not being totally zombified yeah. but sometimes <laughs> when I feel lonely now because I'm thinking specifically let's say of, of Ed Smith who was a straight man but completely crazy, completely talented, wonderful poet, um, and my friend Katie, who they were roommates together before I even knew either one of them. They were roommates. Both of them, I would say, were really like, well, Katie was a lover as well. Ed Smith, he fucked everybody. He just, he was like a, he was like a little boy with, with sex. It just, it wasn't so much having great orgasms, it was just putting my dick in people. But he was so funny about it, you couldn't get mad at him. Anyway, he also committed suicide, and Katie overdose and and then my my good friend Vidya who was the one who got me into yoga and in 2000 she got bit by a dog in India and died of rabies wow. and I that was that was horrible the other two were sad but I know they, they had some problems but Vidya was one of those kind of people who everything was planned everything had to be just so nothing was left to chance and she gets bit by a dog and dies talk about karma wow yeah and those are just three ones that are that come to mind and there were many 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 others so sometimes I feel really lonely because and then of course my my first husband died a year after Bob died and we were going to get remarried again we had remained friends all those years and he loved Bob that was so weird I mean they had nothing in common when Bob was at the Santa Monica Museum of Art Dan would walk down there or whatever and sit with him while, while, while Bob was in the hospital and the, yeah and and um yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> but he died, and we talked about getting married again. But he died a year after Bob died. He was only like 66. He wasn't very old. So. Yeah, I've, all, I've never heard you speak ill of him. Like, never. There was never anything to say speak ill of. He was a very sweet man. He was a very, very sweet man. And I rescued him because he was like 11 years older than me. All his friends, best friends, were married with children. And he was a bachelor, you know? And he didn't really yet. He was a school teacher, very kind man. That's how we met, because he was my master teacher. Um, but he was sort of living, still living at home at age 32, yeah. <laughs> which was ridiculous. But I made a man out I made a mensch out of him. Mm -hmm. Gave him children who we adored. He loved his children. We traveled all over the world. We, I mean, we did... We bought houses. We had a really a really good life together, I would say. It was never except I was bored and I, I just felt there had to be Yeah, it just wasn't the life that was meant for you. I, I tried it, I yeah. did my best, I really gave it my all, you know. And and all my friends at that time, um, were having affairs and not telling their husbands. Yeah. And I thought I was very judgmental on that. 
I thought, no, no, it's not fair to the, your husband. If you want to sleep with other man, fine, but tell him. Yeah, and be you, your true self. Be your true self. And if he doesn't like it, then get divorced. But but the sex was never that important to me as far as just having sex. I mean, I was interested in having sex. I had much more sex than probably most people. But it was it was more than just wanting to experiment and, 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 and try things I had never tried before and saying yes. Mm-hmm. Saying yes to life. Yeah, that's it. Saying that's yes it. to life. And I think today with the whole thing with the abortion issue and everything else, all the people hating everybody and black people and gay people and trans people, there's so much hatred it seems to me now. Yeah. It didn't, maybe it always existed, but, but I did everything I could and my friends did everything we could to bring people together, you know, to, to have more, a wide variety of, of life choices and not be locked into one because this is what your mother did. Or they told you that's what you have to do. But that seems to be gone. That that certainly didn't pan out, you know. My mother said to me when I told her I was getting divorced, she says, what do you think? You're going to set the world on fire? Remember, I'm 37 years old. I wasn't particularly beautiful or anything like that. And that didn't matter to me. But that's what she said to me. And I think that I took that as a psychological, yeah, I want to set the world on yeah. fire. But not everybody feels that way. <laughs> I do. But, yeah. 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 I'm glad you did too. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think about that. I think about legacy and and you know, I mean, and, and all, all the stuff that's written about me that all this all this academic women who are just very into every the details of my life with Bob and stuff, which I think is fun. I, I like reading it, but I didn't think about any of that stuff. Yeah, you were just living, and you weren't. Like you said, even your art process, it was just happening. Like you were yeah. just doing what you did. And like, that's when the greatest stuff Yeah, and, and things just happen very organically. And that was, I mean, I miss, I, I, that happens with Martin. It does. I shouldn't be too down on stuff because I did have at least a good, you know, t- 10 years or so with, with Martin where, where we did amazing work together. And we might still, but I'm old now and I'm tired now. I don't know that I even want to do it. 24-hour performance. I've done it. I've done many of them. You know, it's just like, I don't feel like, um, I don't know what I want to do now, actually. I don't, I don't know. Travel? I don't, oh, there's a funny story. Somebody from Africa in a, ta- a, land, a land called Togo, which is in Africa, which I never heard of before. It's mm-hmm. called Togo. And this guy calls me and says, I want you to come and do a workshop in Togo and for 20 days in Africa and you'll do performance and you'll get and I thought to myself you know what maybe before my heart attack five years ago maybe I would have or before the pandemic I would have said yes but I I said no so I think my my crazy wandering days when I would do anything because I thought it was interesting I think those days are gone yeah my health just isn't you know and I don't know what I would do for 20 days in Africa that's a long time that is big very big, yeah. But it was fun to be asked. Always fun to be yeah. asked. But um, no, I don't. I hope Martin will come out. I hope he I, well, he has two years off, you know, and he has a lot of friends here. Yeah, he's so beloved here. So like, I'm hoping he yeah. will. But as far as what I'm going to do with him, if I had anything, I really thought of. Oh, I have to do this. I have this idea. I want. I don't. I don't really have any. He'll probably have an idea. Yeah. Well, he always does. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But you know, I think I think the pandemic. Just changed a lot of things. Yeah, it did. And it made people fearful. And I think that's that's the worst thing you can have is fear. But rightfully so. You know, you don't, don't want to get that disease. 
I think it slowed everybody down. But I think that's what's happening now in America. Not that I'm so surprised at this. I'm not surprised at all. Because those evangelicals have been at this for like, they've been after this ever since Roe passed. This is not a new thing they just thought of. They've been stacking the, the courts and making sure they get all these conservative. Trump did more damage to this country in four years than I think any president has ever done because of what he's done with, the, with all the courts, the Supreme Courts especially, and all the lower courts. So much more damage than I could have ever imagined. No I, one, I was terrified, but... And what's terrifying yeah. is people, people still like him. Yeah. It's like they want a monster. They want a dictator. They want a creep. Because I think he's like... Everybody has, you know, they have the, the id, the superego, and the ego. Okay. A lot of people who are successful have very strong superegos. They're very take charge. They'll do whatever they need to do. Fine. And But most people, their id, most people, I would say, is pretty well hidden. But not with Donald Trump. His id is out there. It's just it's like it's hungry. It's grabbing. Like grabbing pussy. That's, yeah. who he, that's, that's what the id does. The id grabs and doesn't ask any questions. The id wants what it wants, and they'll just take it. Doesn't matter, and doesn't care what damage because they don't. They don't have a super ego. He does not have a super ego. He does not have a conscience saying to him, "You know what? Maybe I shouldn't do this." He doesn't have that. And I think most people, my my psychological um, idea about this, they have that too, but they're too frightened to let it out. Yeah. That they would have. They would have many more consequences than Donald Trump. So, but. He is doing what they would like to do. He's ex- unfortunately he's exactly like my father. <laughs> Talk about Freudian. Really? Yeah. yeah, my father is my brother. My father loves Donald Trump, and he whenever I hear Donald Trump talk, like he reminds me so much of my dad. It's like PTSD level. He, the way he talks, the way he oh, I think, manipulates, like his just everything about him is. Unfortunately, yeah. I think a lot of men are like that. And he's doing everything. They wish they could run the country and <laughs> sleep with whoever they want to and divorce whoever they want to and just wreck, wreck havoc. And the thing is, he's, I wouldn't even mind that if he was smart. But he's so yeah, stupid. He's, he's, just, he's just an ignorant person. But I think most people in America are ignorant. That's the problem. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, I was thinking I was thinking I would move to Mexico, but I'm really too old for that to make that big of a change at this point, you know. I think about it though. Think about it. And maybe if Jane had been a bit nicer. Yeah, that's another regret because I don't really have very many friends my age or who even knew Bob. There's maybe two or three. She was one of them. And I I honor anybody who knew Bob personally because most people just know him by reputation. Mm-hmm. Like the guy the guy today one of the assistants today said, oh, you know, I told, was telling him a little bit about the music videos that I used to be in and stuff like that with Bob. And he saw all of them. He knew all of them, you know. But those people, he was probably in his 20s or something, they don't know who Bob Flanagan was. They know him through his videos and through the movie, whatever. They don't really know him. So He's so charismatic on camera that you... you and he's so funny and personable that you feel he's one of those people you like feel like you knew him like you were, like Mr. Rogers right, or something yeah. a perverted <laughs> like, Mr. Rogers yeah exactly like a perverted Mr. Rogers exactly like, you, you feel with, so with, close with, to him and with but, a with a wicked sense of humor yeah that's what got me I think more than anything else about Bob he made me laugh and I I'm a depressive by na- nature but he could make me laugh he could make me laugh 
and um, I've never met anybody like that who who had that ability to, to you know. And that's why, really, I've been I've been single. I mean, I was married twice, once 14 years, once 16 years. So it's a long time to have been married. <laughs> yeah. So I don't even feel the need to be partnered up anymore. Yeah, no. You know, well, you should. You're young. <laughs> and you have a nice partner. How's he doing, by the way? He's good. Just busy, busy. Being an artist, struggling. <laughs> but um, he's just, yeah, he's a wonderful partner. And super um, just accepting of my lifestyle and all the all these projects I'm involved in and that's gives good. me he gives me so much space to like do my thing and yeah. that's well that's what you important. need. You yeah. absolutely need that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, that's good. I'm really happy for you. Yeah, he it's loves hard. Dirk loves him. It's just like I yeah. need it. It's hard to find a guy that you can bring to the Tom of Finland Foundation and be like, this is my family. <laughs> like this is absolutely yeah. how are they, I haven't seen them or talked to them. How are they all doing? They're good. Have they are killing them? it. They're like they have so. Many I didn't go. Events. I didn't. Ha- I didn't go to that Tom of Finland dad, thing. The daddy's day. So that's like always important for me because right. I talk to my dad. So right, it's like right. my healing space exactly. to spend Father's Day with them. But like that was the that was like leveled up. Like that venue was like fancy beautiful Hollywood they had Orville Peck performing who's like a superstar like <laughs> and it was like two stories just oh gorgeous. It, it was overwhelming though a little bit like I didn't stay as like I was like I stayed yeah. for a few hours and volunteered got to see everybody got yeah. my hugs and then I was like okay this uh, is a yeah well that's but, all you need sometimes that's all you need well I, yeah, I miss like, going to the Tom's house I mm-hmm. miss that had such good times well, we'll there we'll have to go over there soon they're they're all like Dirk has been very. I think it's. They came back from Europe, weren't they in Europe for a while? They were in Europe and they had a big show there, and then or two big shows there. Yeah, I think some of my work is in that show. I think. Yeah, I think you have work in that show. So and then I don't know. Dirk is. I think with getting older, he's just every time I see him, he's like just very like sentimental and sweet and like oh. has this. Well, that's really what happens. I think I'm older than him. Not much though. I think he's getting close to my age, something like yeah. that. You do. I mean, because I, I think life is now precious. I could have been dead for these last three years. So I'm not. <laughs> Bob would always say that I'm supposed to have been dead, but I'm not. <laughs> On that note, do you want to go get some sushi? Yes, or? let's do that. You know, okay. sushi is my favorite. Okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health Query. If you would like to dive deeper into the life and works of Sherry Rose, I highly recommend the book. It's called Rated Rx Sherry Rose with and after Bob Flanagan. It came out in 2020. It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. As always, there are links to more information available in the show notes. And if you enjoy this podcast or know somebody else who might, please share it, please rate it, and please subscribe. Also, don't forget to check out pelvicsanctuary.org if you would like more information about LGBTQIA plus pelvic health as an individual Or if you would like to support our programs, we have so many projects in the works right now and we could really use some donations and support to give us a boost. It's tax deductible. We're a charitable 501c3. Now that we have a flow with the podcast set up, 
I am booking my doctor friends, so I have some really exciting specialists coming up, so get ready to learn. All right, take care, everybody. Bye.